that's what I need for Drake. I need a pop shield. That's a better Drake lyric than anything he's ever come up with. <laughs> this podcast is going to end with us doing a Drake diss track live. Oh my what? You are hiding a talent. <laughs> yeah, you are hiding the fact that you're embedded in cultural misogyny. <laughs> singles it's like grinder but instead of abs it's rappers <laughs> is that the actual intro are we going let's I, go I, i'm fucking doing it yeah my name is allison <laughs> uh i'm at allison underscore coffee on twitter i'm one of the hosts i got my other host who's gonna say their name now hey i'm regression aka rags aka michael which pick whichever one you're you're gonna fancy but hey remember that regression's got three s's in it three s's no one knows how to spell it. It's an awful Twitter handle, but I like it. And fuck you. Oh, we should say uh, pronouns. My pronouns are they, them, or she, her. I'm happy either way. They, them, or he, him. Happy either way. Um, and today, for our inaugural episode of the podcast, we were... Regs, we were going to do Odd Future. Remember when we were going to have fun on the yeah. first episode of this podcast? Hey, hey, remember when we thought, hey... Let's be positive and enjoy our time talking about music we love and expressing the joy and unique insights that we, as people who love music, can bring when we listen to music we love. Fuck that. Let's talk about Drake, who I fucking hate. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, So there's a new album out. It's called Scorpion, and it's pretty fucking dull. It's... Okay. So for, like, people who haven't been following Drake's career as closely as I have, it's been, like, a real up-and-down few years. Like, 2015, if you're reading this, was good. 2016, views was bad. 17, more life is good. And then now, in 2018, we're back to bad Drake, baby. It's... We're on a cycle. Put him in the spin. Except I... I don't know if he can recover from how bad this album is. I mean, you say that. I did also see on Spotify he's currently the most listened to artist in the world. Oh, so, like, commercially you know. he'll be fine. I just, like, I have liked Drake at various moments in my life, and I think maybe Scorpion is so bad that it is making me like other Drake that I used to like less. <laughs> okay, to put some personal context on it, I have always hated Drake. I didn't get at all why people were so high on him in the first place. Either in those, like, actual poppy rap hits, or with Take Care. Like, I was that sort of, like, baby queer who grew the fuck up on Frank Ocean. And, mm-hmm. like, oh, there's this wave of, like, resurgent R&B led by these, like, slightly sad boy rappers. Hey, you should, you should probably like this stuff if you're, like, emotionally invested in, in cool electronic music. And it seemed like the most po-faced, dumb, like... Uh, unintelligent stuff ever which runs completely counter to the narrative that like hey drake has put out one really special album it's called take care yeah like because once again we're talking like i imagine a lot of our audience is not like as deep in the music as we are so like 
another like important bit of like historical context is that like Drake's biggest innovation in like pop music is that he has really um he sing and he rap he sing and he rap he does the R&B the pop and he does the rap music and like that still feels like a big deal 10 years into his career but like the thing I am increasingly realizing is that he's bad at it. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Hey, like, we got, we were sucker 2011-12 spoiled by, like, early Frank Ocean, Kendrick blowing up, um, but, like, Pusha T coming to his, like, absolute prime, and, like, this whole suite of um, slightly underground rappers starting to make a name for themselves. And I, like, yeah. the earliest throws of Earl Sweatshirt, the earliest throws of ASAP Mob. Like we had think we had things to listen to that weren't Drake. Yes. And surely they should have clued us in that Drake was quite bad at making rap music. The the moment that I start turning on Drake in twenty sixteen is like the year that like because Chance had made um Chance the Rapper had made Acid Rap in twenty fourteen and it's like really good, but in twenty sixteen, like he becomes much more of a singing rapper and like mm. Chance is so much more talented than Drake is. And like, yeah, Chance is where I started to see all these other artists who could give me the thing that Drake was giving me. <laughs> also, Chance is just a good boy. Yeah, Chance I want to like bring to my parents for dinner. I, I think he'll like compliment my mom's cooking, even if the chicken's slightly dry. It's, it's going to be lit. Oh, yeah. Ch- Chance is the only rapper that my mom likes. <laughs> Wow. Like, that's the biggest endorsement of Chance. <laughs> Chance. Raps for moms. <laughs> she just likes the good Christian boy. I mean, at the same time, there, there are some definite, like, lesbian jokes hiding in there, but, like, <laughs> pull this, pull this all the way back before we delve too far into that hole. Yeah. Um, I should put it out there that my parents do not like any rap music because they can't hear the words that fast. schnooks um so yeah like i think trying to pick apart exactly why scorpion is awful is probably a waste of time we'll inevitably do a fair bit of that just because hey we're talking about drake in the year of our luigi 2018 but um what the real challenge is to figure out where it all went wrong given that there is the consensus opinion that, hey, he produced one incredible album. Yeah. And that was all of seven years ago. And yeah. he's had a huge career ever since that we need to somehow explain how it lost that magic. Yeah, because like, and there's like, these like moments in the career since then where you think maybe he found it again and he immediately fumbles it um, like a month later. So... So what do you think is like, for you, I think the one that we keep coming back to is rap masculinity and yes. what Drake represents in terms of like an attempted break from that, yes. like what would in other circles be called toxic masculinity, but like there's a specific type of behaviors and like, uh, like troped, um, yes. like lyrical notions that get stuck in every single rap track from the last 25 years and Drake was supposed to represent a break from that. And like, even on take care, he's both representing that and like 
the more I think about take care, the more he fails in that way. So let's talk about the best Drake song, like on any of his albums. Marvin's Room is the best Drake song. Guess she don't have the time to kick it no more. Flights in the morning. What you doing that's so important? I've been drinking so much that I'ma call you anyway and say, Fuck that nigga that you love so bad. I know you still think about the times we had. Marvin's Room is on its face a song about a breakup a song about a woman doing drake wrong um and he's just like at this party he's in his feelings he's drinking he's not really talking to people he's just a downer at this party and like that's not it's not a thing you see in like any other rappers like you would never see Pusha T doing this you know but like the thing about Marvin's Room that should have been apparent to me back in 2011 and only becomes more apparent with time is that Drake is the bad guy in that song. Drake is the antagonist. Drake is the one, like, calling this poor woman's phone and expecting attention and telling her that she could do better and blah, blah, blah. And Drake, in Marvin's Room, throughout all of Take Care and throughout, like, his whole catalog back to his first single best I ever had is selling himself as not threatening to women in the same way that uh, a lot of rappers are like more actively misogynist he's trying to present himself as approachable and nice and sweet and he's so often antagonistic without realizing it I mean more than antagonistic like this will touch on the other sort of more like insidious or maybe insipid ways that he like presents his misogyny later. Mm -hmm. But like, even to start with the idea of like presenting the scenario where you're like drunk calling an ex is like still a really aggressive maneuver. Yeah. But like, as soon as we get into like later Drake, we get all sorts of episodes of like, basically slut shaming and like we have a, to jump all the way to because they've been staring at somebody else's version of shit that makes another city seem more exciting than it is i know a girl whose one goal was to visit rome then she finally got to rome and all she did was post pictures for people at home because all that mattered was impressing everybody she's known i know another girl that's crying out for help but the latest yeah and the midway through the second verse of emotionless he just gets onto this flow where he's talking about i know a girl who and these girls aren't offered names or contexts or explanations oh, right this she, instagram bullshit yeah so like hey i know i'm gonna quote i know i know a girl whose one goal was to visit rome then she finally got to rome and all she did was post pictures for people at home because all that all that mattered was impressing everybody she's known um then a couple of lines later like maybe this is from the same episode maybe it isn't who knows all these girls are completely anonymous i know a girl that saves pictures from places she's flown to post later and make it look like she's still on the go so okay this isn't sexual this isn't and talking about drake's individual relationships with individual women what it certainly is is like displaying his 
grand distaste at, the, at any sort of like like representation of the empowerment of women whatever form it takes like hey a, a, like a girl wants to show off that the fact that she's on holiday great sweet I'm, I'm very happy for her why drake feels the need to comment on that reflects on him not on society um the the idea that drake is some sort of like grand insight on the basis of his ability to like comment on what women are doing rather than just view them as sexual objects like it's barely any better like no. you're just as judgmental and rude and snipey for saying that like um <laughs> for saying that girls are like putting out the wrong captions on their instagram photos than you are for just viewing them as sex objects there's there's this in 2018 in 2015 there's a uh, hotline bling and Ever since I left the city, you got a reputation for yourself now. Like, she's not allowed to just, like, have fun and go to parties with her friends when he's not around. Like, I don't think the implication of Hotline Bling is ever that she's, like, cheating on him. Just that, like, she has a life while he's on tour, you know? Yeah, totally. In Marvin's room, I'm just saying you could do better. Um, in his first single, Best I Ever Had, there's a... The, the classic sweatpants, hair tied, chilling with no makeup on. That's when you're the prettiest. Like, the most fucking nice guy, soft boy, motherfucking. <laughs> Drake is Drake is so frustrating because like, just because this is the person I am. I was listening to like, America's Most Wanted, the like 1990 Ice Cube album. The same day I listened to Scorpion. I'm like, Ice Cube hates women, at least at that time. I think he's, it sounds like he's better now. I don't know. Um, he likes the WA, WNBA, I know. Anyway, Ice Cube was like... Shout out to Shea Serrano. <laughs> in like 1990, like, Ice Cube was like beating women up in the streets. And like, it somehow feels less insidious than like Drake's thing of like trying to get into women's like, hearts just to manipulate them and tear them down, you know? Like, it's just... He's so skeevy, and, like, he's doing this only on a world scale, you know? It's like... It's like this Nick Robinson shit, but, like, he's the biggest selling pop artist of our time. I mean, Nick Robinson shit is, like, really underselling the scale and the, yeah. the nature of what exactly he's he's up to. And I mean, if you go back to something like if you're reading this too late, it's very much back on the uh, back on the like classic rap tropes of like sleeping with a lot of women and being proud of not caring about it. And like he he does at various points just slip back into that personality of like literally like rampant misogynistic like ownership of women property mongering. It's 2015 was such a strange year for Drake because um, he puts out, if you're reading this early in the year um, and he gets on the Instagram and he starts posting pictures of how he's been working out a bunch. And you're like, Oh, this is, we're now in tough Drake era. Drake is tired of everyone saying that he's like a soft boy. And so he like bulked up and he's putting out this rap album about how he has shooters or whatever, which no one believes, but all right. Um, stuff about, like, catching cases, and it's like, no, you don't, Drake. No, you don't. Um, and then he has the Meek Mill beef, um, which 
just makes him continue to look tough. So I think we should put a bit of context to exactly what that beef was. So that that beef, Meek accuses Drake of ghost of having ghost riders, um, and that that beef like has really changed the culture in the last three years because Meek um, is like one of the last of a generation who's like I I wrote all these raps myself. These are raps about my life. Um, I was on the streets. I go to jail sometimes. Um, and rap saved me. You know, like making money in the rap game saved my life. Um, and so Drake having a ghostwriter is like a real affront to once again that like rap masculinity of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, so Meek is mad about this. And there's also this like undercurrent of both of Drake being interested in Nikki, who was Meek's girlfriend at the time. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> we'll get onto Drake with his multiple celebrity affections shortly, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Like, I think Meek is, like, mostly right in his problems with Drake in that beef, but, like, was not prepared because Drake's true talent is, like, being an internet person, and Drake, like harvests all his internet meme energy and puts out charged up and back to back and just like totally within a week wins that whole beef no one cares about meek for a few years until meek is going through a redemption arc now that we can talk about some other time but don't jump to conclusions you boys are getting any of your feelings on me you should embrace it this could be one of our realest moments okay the flow start to feel familiar don't it must I remind you that Jimmy got 20 million uh, So for me, that throws up a really important question um, about that image of Drake um, violating, like, rap masculinity. It's very clear that, that Drake issues some of the trappings of hip-hop's, like, traditional woman-hating. At the same time, not only, like, as we've talked about, does he express... Um, a lot of these sentiments but in more like subtle ways he's also like very much embedded in the sort of like cultural milieu of like corporate production and like the rampant need to like produce saleable images a lot of which include like not only the thing things about being famous and enjoying fame but also the ability to like control people around you and particularly because that's explicitly what he's doing like he's marshalling talents that aren't really his he's marshalling a fleet of producers he's marshalling mm -hmm. the, the creative energy of so many other people and that that's a different kind of like what it's i i don't want to say appropriation it's an appropriation of labor at the very very least that the drake is an expert as like corporate manager that is a talent that maybe only dj khaled rivals i i didn't even think about this when we were prepping the podcast but like if you look at who is signed to um, OVO Records, um, you got like, so Dre, uh, conveniently, um, the Wikipedia for OVO Records um, has like number of releases under label and it's got Drake, 20, and then Party Next Door, 5, O.B. O'Brien, 0, Majid Jordan, 2. And like some of these people have been signed since 2012. Um, one of my like absolute favorite acts, uh, I love McConan, 
um, was signed for two years and like didn't put anything out and now he's released from his contract and is like starting to make moves again and like all these people are just getting signed just to write for Drake and it's just it's like sad like there's a lot of like real talent like Party Next Door could be like a genuine talent if he were not just like stuck under Drake's thumb writing bullshit R&B songs for him that Drake can't even really that he doesn't have the range for <laughs> you know yeah so i think there are two directions to go from here one is the the mm-hmm. sort of like drake is a fake um like when do and don't we buy drake and what parts of his performance like let us buy buy into it or not or onto collaborators so like what do you want to go for the, the only thing i really have to say about when we do and don't buy drake is that it is it is very fickle, you know, and I don't know if I ha- I can, like, totally put my finger on it other than I never buy the stuff he says about, like, having shooters. Yeah, you know? so, like, the lyrical content component is, like, totally obvious when he's talking about stuff that, like, very clearly, like, he's been a, a known child star for, like, God knows how many years in the Over public. a decade. Yeah, well, I mean... 15 years? I mean, how old is Degrassi? Like, early, mid-90s, like, it's been an age. Yeah. So, like, we know what his life is like. He's a rapper by choice, not out of necessity. Sure, like, we know this for sure. At the same time, I think, and, like, this is where going back to take care has really been illuminating for me. Performance really does Mm -hmm. matter. So, like, on tracks like Take Care itself, the title track, which is a a reworked version of the Jamie XS remix of, um, what, one of the Jamie XS remixes of Gil Scott Heron. But yeah, so like you listen to a track like Take Care and what I'm interested in is the sort of delivery and the sort of comparison when you put them side by side between Rihanna and Drake and like the collaboration and the the nature of the relationship between Rihanna and Drake is obviously a, a like a huge topic in and of itself. But just in a microcosm here, mm-hmm. Drake is drenched in um in um pitch correction in, in autotune to the point where he's literally incapable of expression. He is, like, utter, utterly, yes. like, flat in this track, where Rihanna comes along and singing identical lines sounds alive all of a sudden, and I, yeah. Why Drake slathers himself in autotune, I don't know. Some of it is, of course, stylistic. Some of it maybe to cover up the fact that he might not be the world's greatest singer. Um, at the same time, like what it certainly does and what listening back to Take Care is sort of revealing relative to a lot of the better R&B artists who have like both preceded and like arrived in the, in the wake of it is that Drake doesn't really have the um, performance ability to like hold up when um he's actually trying to express things and like the the problem for me is that like okay i can intellectually park the misogyny and just say like could i buy this and vibe to this if it was just like playing in the background of a like a i don't know what would it be a sort of hotel bar 
where I'm sort of sitting by the pool, like yeah. reminiscing about the fact that I'm not there with an ex. And like, it, if it came on, would I like, oh, this captures my emotional sentiments? And the answer is no, because Drake sounds like he's landed like a spaceship on top of the beat. Right. Whereas Rihanna or many of the other like collaborators on that album actually feel like they own that sentiment much better than he does. And like, hey, I've covered both collaborators and and the the why I don't buy Drake in one. Um, the 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 so like the the vocal production takes that he has are really inhibiting for any chance that like. Mm-hmm you actually buy what he says just because like they're so flat they're so regular they're so like it's like there's the the trope in pop music of everything being up front and um like rounded off so that it's like loud and present and you can hear it super clearly that's not what you want in r&b because you want detail you want clarity you want space to breathe and you want like nuance to communicate things and drake just both in his artistic choices and obviously in the music that he's made because of his creative decisions um but like both the technical and in the creative side he has just decided to enter a space where he literally cannot express emotions properly it, it feels mm-hmm. incredibly like emotionally stunted which to me is like why i questioned why everyone thought take care was so emotionally astute um it felt like they didn't understand what the purpose of the vocal production was whereas you put it next to like rihanna's takes or the kendrick interlude or the like little uh, little Wayne and Andre track, and it's just very clear that there are certainly rappers and artists out there who can one hundred percent own that like emotional space and have the performance range to be in that space, whereas Drake just really doesn't. And that that has been like the central the central problem for me going back through his catalogue is that you can recognise and park a lot of the political concerns and still not by the music because he's not a performer of the caliber of the, the people who surrounded him and like propped him up and propped up the sort of image of Drake as the emotional performer. Looking in the mirror, I'm embarrassed. I'm feeling like a suicidal terrorist. React like an infant whenever you are mentioned. Mind over matter never worked for my nemesis. I'm in the matter of man, aren't wrestling hands. I was dope when I said the- Right, like, it reminds me of like, a lot of conversation around Drake as this like, person who brought like rap and r&b together and like he actually has like a lot of predecessors and antecedents that like i feel like only one of them gets enough credit and that's kanye um on 808s and heartbreaks and like kanye on 808s and in all of kanye's like more singing songs is like auto-tuned and compressed and like processed to hell and back um but like it works because so much better for Kanye than it well, does I for Drake because, because um, it has a purpose. It's meant to like Yeah. It's meant to describe what? Like this is Is this directly post his mother's death? Yes, yeah. it's right after his mother's death. It's uh right after a breakup with someone he was engaged to, I believe. Um and like for all of Kanye's like many faults, like Kanye's biggest strength is that he he is ill. He has been ill for so long. Um, and he lets us all into that in a really powerful way. And Drake plays at letting us into 100%. that. He acts like he's letting us in, 
but he doesn't. I don't really know what's going on with Drake, you know? So, like, there are two aspects um, to that. Firstly, Kanye's vocal production, like, as we were saying, like, when he's distorted to all hell or auto-tuned to, like, all hell, that's got a purpose. It's, like, communicating how, um, in, in various cases, I'm thinking, like, some of the Yeezus tracks where, like, there's just raw anger there, hiding what hiding mm-hmm. behind everything and like you can just feel it when the vocals are that gritty and like scream a blood mm-hmm. like as if it's a metal solo or something at you or on AOH and heartbreaks like it's uncanny and distorted and like slightly not in the world anymore and that 100% works in an environment where like Kanye is messy and emotionally unstable and not quite in the world anymore and it, it totally has a, a purpose the second part is the lyrics, where, like, we we could spend the next 20 minutes of the podcast just, like, looking through Genius for Drake couplets and punchlines that, um, that are, are just awful. And, like... Shoutouts to Asian girls with Lights Doom song. Oh, my God. You had to, you had to do that. Okay, so, like, <laughs> so if there is a, a call to action at any point in this podcast, uh, Ali, could you repeat the Drake line about Asian girls? Shout out to Asian girls, let the lights dim some. And we should put that against the Kanye line. Eating Asian pussy, all I need was sweet and sour sauce. <laughs> there we go. Um, uh, it's the worst. It's the worst. It's the worst. But like, the, I really enjoy. <laughs> My most problematic rap take in the world is that I really enjoy the eating Asian pussy, all I need is sweet and sour sauce line, because. Kanye really feels it as he's saying it. Like, like he just is inflecting every single syllable. There's a strength there <laughs> that is misplaced, but convincing. <laughs> Ali, Ali, the 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 Colin Lingus respecter. <laughs> <laughs> And to get off Kanye a little bit, um, another antecedent I think about is um, T-Pain, actually, who is like an R&B singer who I think operates in a rap space in a way that like a lot of R&B men had flirted with before, but like T-Pain's like really in it. And T-Pain is like, his trademark is that he's auto-tuned. Like T-Pain has never like, emoted in his life he's just singing songs for strip clubs and having fun but like t-pain is such a charismatic and talented performer <laughs> and it's like has if drake were ever on a song with t-pain which i can't recall him doing off the top of my head it would be immensely clear that like drake stacks up as a performer next to um a lot of rappers but a lot next to a lot of singers He's just not there. Yeah. You know? And I mean, we've talked a lot about singers in that sense. I still don't think that... I think in terms of emotional sentiment, there are certainly rappers that he's, like, brought onto his own tracks that, like, match him perfectly. Like, even fucking Rick... Even fucking Rick Ross, like, bosses Drake in his own track on Lord Knows. Like, there are so many moments when just, like... When Rick Ross sounds distraught, it feels distraught. And, like, Rick Ross has the same fucking problems with, um, like, insincerity that Drake does. Rick Ross is, like, 
I don't think has ever written a line for himself. I think it's all ghostwritten. Um, Rick Ross, you know, took his name from a guy who ran a drug ring in L.A. in the 80s. Rick Ross was a correction facility officer. Rick Ross is 1,000% ingenuine, even more so than Drake. And, like, can at least sell it, you know? Like, you don't believe it, but, like, it's convincing either way. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I think you got it there. So, like, the the two others that I think are useful to put alongside are Frank Ocean. Not because he's a rapper, as well as it being obviously a singer. Mm-hmm. But because the the kind of emotional vulnerability that he was expressing about this time in his life... Nostalgia Ultra is also 2011. So on on Nostalgia Ultra, um, Frank Ocean firstly isn't out. He's also not um, in the business of um, like detailing his like internal state. What he is in the business of is like detailing situations and um, uh, like moods and scenes like quite incredibly well. And like the talent there, even without needing to resort to interiority is like so clearly obvious um and the other one is the weekend i think alongside it thinking about house of balloons is really informative just because like okay the weekend isn't supposed to be a rapper either but the 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 reason for me in my head the lines blur is because he also auto-tunes the heck out of his voice and removes intonation to the point where it sounds a lot like drake's tuned rapping and mm-hmm. what you end up having is a difference. Like, it's certainly not an aesthetic difference. The, the difference between Drake half-sing rapping and uh, The Weeknd's half-rapped singing is, like, barely perceptible. What certainly is perceptible is, like, the degree to which you, like, feel The Weeknd is this sort of scuzzy, like, Prince of the Underworld. And, like, the, the, the track that I think always comes to mind when I, I think about that is Hold On, We're Going Home because Drake takes the sweetest ballad and attempts to make the sweet Drake version of it and fucks it up royally because he's Drake and he can't do that sweet ballad. You don't believe him when he says you're a good girl and you know it. It's it's so like stomach channeling disgusting. Whereas if you're The weekend and you say that, you've got this history of like drug fueled excess and like morbid fascination with like both the insidious control over women, but also the the sort of like luxuriating and the sort of the sloppy mess that follows your like party scene. And like if if the weekend were to sing "You're a Good Girl" and you know it, it would sound so different. It would sound so scuzzy, and you oh yeah, and like that song's character changes entirely. But like oh yeah, the idea was that song was like oh god, Drake can be sweet and, and like, affectionate. And, hey, it was Pitchfork's Song of the Year for whatever it was, 2014. And, and like, that was on the basis that people believed Drake was that sweet. And, like, he failed to be sweet because he's a bit scuzzy and he does. it's not meant to be. You could either give that song to, like, Ariana Grande and she'd knock it out of the park. Or you, or you could give that song to The Weeknd and turn it into the most, like, sinister like post post Billy Jean like like stomach churning mess. But it, it would be a very, very different song. And like 
the the way he managed to royally fuck up one of the best written pop songs of the last decade is like endlessly like fascinating and disappointing to me well can, have you seen the video yeah for hold on we're going home what the fuck is that he's like like drake does not understand what this song is on any level you know like what uh, uh, I don't have words. I just, hold on, we're going home is so bad. So I think now, like, there are, there's a couple of places where we should actually believe Drake at face value. And the two I'm thinking of are off this new record, Summer Games, and anytime he mentions this kid. So firstly, firstly on yes. Summer Games, we've got what, what purports to be a sort of like, like what a wannabe lord track is the best way i can describe it this like uh like lost love um over a summer that like thought he thought was going places and a lot of the reporting has been that it's about rihanna and not sure how credible that is but it's a very interesting frame given that he has specifics and details about the circumstance of this relationship and for the first time ever he um well, for basically since the first time since Care, I think he's actually hurt. And, like, I think it serves to underscore his, like, general misogyny that, like, yeah, it's it's pretty obvious that in the one case that he actually respects a woman when she's um the most internationally famous pop star of our generation, he actually gets hurt when he's rejected. Whereas everyone else, in inverted commas, um, doesn't deserve that respect. And the, for all his, like, it like apparent woman respecting it takes like it takes a different kind of person to actually get at drake personally and like so in asking it reflects maybe what changed between between take care and this album on take care on marvin's room indeed he was like saying that like having a hard time adjusting to fame is the line like he was already famous. He was already, like, on a different level to the mere mortals that he no longer respected. It takes getting from that, like, shock of, oh, I'm different. It takes eight years of, like, oh, I, I'm different. I can celebrate this. I can, like, exploit people and, like, poke fun at them and tease them and whatever it might be. And it takes until he gets, like, turned down Bariana for him to actually, like, run away back to Toronto with his tail between his legs. Right. Well, and like, while I was listening to this, I was reminded of, um, passion fruit, which I think is like a pretty solid song, but, um, like passion fruit is almost better when someone else covers it. A lot of the time, I feel like, um, like passion fruit just feels like a good song and would be a good song with or without Drake. Whereas this is the first time in a while where it feels like Drake is experiencing heartbreak and Drake is telling us about his heartbreak. And um, it's rooted in like more of his petty social media stuff. Like the first line of the first verse is, You say I led you on, but you follow me. I follow one of your friends, you unfollow me. Then you block them so they can't see you like it's someone just like me. And like, 
like I mentioned with the Meek Mill beef, he's like so online, <laughs> he will never log off. Um, okay, maybe the Nick Robinson comparison is apt. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's so specific to the point where you have to believe this is actually meaningful for him. Whereas Passion Fruit, a song I really like, is just a song that Drake is singing and that I can sing just as convincingly. I heard like a million Passion Fruit covers that are convincing because it's like a very general heartbreak sort of deal. Totally, totally. The other thing we need to talk about is the kid. So we have this now notorious Pusha T bus. It's it's pretty vicious. It's pretty damn vicious. Uh, yeah. And so the, it's it's pretty useful, I think, at this point to track exactly what Drake responded with at various points in time. Um, he started out with I'm upset, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. which does go into some like limited detail about his personal life. Like that's where the, the nugget of truth about his um, his father still getting child support from 1991 and like the idea of his yeah. parents not actually being together and like oh maybe drake doesn't really know what family is sort of has its genesis and he's rapping um can't go 50 50 with no ho while in the video he is like driving a lamborghini to a party or something you know and it's like i'm really skeeved out by like Drake's distrust of women, like, seems to override, like, any feeling of, like, fatherhood that I feel like he should be experiencing. I mean, you'd hope, but clearly he doesn't know what family is, so, you know. Yeah. (laughs) It's, like, a really, it's, like, a really brutal thing of push to say, but it's also, like, yeah, I see it. I mean, it's very clear that in all of three minutes... Pusha T did a better job psychoanalyzing Drake than not only every think piece, but the entirety of Drake's discography is done. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so like after some initial shots fired, we get Duffy Freestyle, which is a bit more hard nosed and I think deserves some like genuine credibility as like, okay, if this is what a, a, a comeback is going to look like from Drake, yeah, this is probably about as good as he can do. Yeah. It was solid. Drake is rapping. Like, Drake rapping. Drake is a perfectly acceptable rapper. I th- sometimes have issues with his flows, but like he does all right sometimes. And um, Duppy Freestyle showcases that sometimes he can just like put out bars, you know? Indeed. Um, and then Pusha T destroys his world, literally causes the apocalypse <laughs> upon Drake uh, with the story of Adidon. And at this point, not only does the album surreptitiously get delayed, but um, there's a. Did it really? I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, no, the, the um, I think it got pushed back from um, May to August, just because of production reasons, and you can certainly tell because there are in- incredibly topical lyrics on a, a bunch of these tracks. Yeah, no, because it was, it has a little bit of that. It's um, got the Kanye thing, new Kanye album thing of like they're talking about stuff that happened the week before the exactly, album came exactly. out. Exactly, you know. But um, as part of that, what was notable is that OVO was releasing statements instead of response tracks. And that's sort of like, okay, now you know that this is like moved to other areas. Like when Drake is using his PR agent to explain, well, 
hey, back in the day he was explaining why he was having sex four times a week. Now he's explaining why his child is in France. And then out of nowhere, the final track in this album is March 14, which is basically his, like, I'd say mea culpa, but I just want to read you the first four yeah. lines of the verse. Yesterday morning was crazy. I had to come to terms with the fact that it's not a maybe. That shit is in stone. Sealed and signed. She not my lover like Billy Jean, but the kid is mine. Sandy used to tell me all the So just that final line, she not my lover like Billy Jean, but the kid is mine. Mm-hmm. It's a punchline. That is a that's a like a little Wayne style punchline. Yeah. Yeah. I just like both the idea that like you can hark you can legitimately harken back to Billy Jean, like the classic track in this genre. When I say classic, I mean, like, it's still got its own weirdnesses about it, about the idea that one of the greatest pop tracks of, like, the past century is about the idea of um, a woman attempting to claim that she's fathered Michael Jackson's kid. She's fathered? (laughs) Hey, hey, this is what you get when non-binary people get on a podcast together. Um... Uh, yeah, the the idea that um, one of the greatest pop tracks of the like past century is about a woman claiming to have had Michael Jackson's kid, like that has its own issues. But mm-hmm. like, Billie Jean is like impeccable as a song. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. It's um, it's maybe my favorite song ever. Like Billie hey. Jean, fucking rules. And then he not only deigns to to use it as like a lyrical flourish and a punchline. But then like, oh, whoops, I guess Pusher got me. Ha 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 ha. Um, there, there are sincere ways to talk about fatherhood and this really the fuck is not one. Uh, okay, so I've been, there's been like internet sleuthing about what exactly March 14 is because like the easy answer is that it's the kid's birthday, but like, at one point, he says, um, October baby for irony's sake or something. Genius. Yeah, and I think the idea is, I think the idea is they're both October babies, but only Drake is a Scorpio, which is where the album title comes from. There's also March 14 was the date when Drake flew to Wyoming to meet Kanye West to help record his new album. Yeah. Hey, what, what a role model. At least Kanye gives a shit about his kids do well, at least kanye like understands what family is as pusher has quite clearly explained drake does not yeah um there's also continuing to talk about how drake is just so ingenuine there's like the the line that like i'm like try i believe like trying to keep it in this week i'm trying to stop myself from tweeting about drake all this week just so i can get it out on the podcast but he this is the first positive DNA test we ever celebrated. Dude, you don't you don't have cases. You don't have bodies. And stop talking about these fake fucking like D- DNA tests, fingerprints, all your boys are in jail shit on a song about your son. What? <laughs> He's still using a song about, like, his son to, like, push this image of himself, you know? And just unbearable. Yeah, I think March 14 might be the lowest 
point in Drake's entire entire discography. And like, this should be a layup of a song. Like, if you have 20 writers around you working on this, it should be easy to make like a sappy ballad about like, I'm so happy to be a father now. And instead he's, he is a child, you know, like he is, um, noisy. The vice, uh, people had a podcast where they talked about Drake every day for a month last year. Um, yeah, I remember that. (laughs) And they kept comparing him to like, Richie Rich, and he's just, like, a 12-year-old with, like, way too much money, and, like, it's really clear here. Like, he is... He is 12. He is not emotionally... There is no emotional maturity. There is no range here. Uh, This song is exhausting. Incredibly. Um, Just given that we spent a minute name-checking Michael Jackson, there is a track on this album called Don't Matter To Me, which uses an old Michael Jackson acapella that got shelved and resurfaced among Drake's many producers. Mm-hmm. I have my own personal misgivings about the idea of using Michael Jackson's voice to, like, signify something. Like, it's um, it's another voice that feels like it's plucked out of the ether. It certainly doesn't fit the, the, the track underneath it. It's deeply disjointed and kind of uncanny you know in a way that would be interesting if we knew it wasn't going to be sold as one of what 20 uh, 25 tracks good lord on um the biggest double album that's going to drop this summer um if this was like if this is a moment in drake's career that he like pays homage with or it's an element that he can say has happened and can explain with like some external reference great um this drops out of nowhere as what was supposed to be a fully formed track on a fully formed record mm-hmm. and just like again for being so online i think he's like remarkably tone deaf about how it comes across because mm-hmm. He is as flat as ever. He is as dull and boring as ever. I literally didn't even notice him on the song because I was just like, yo, there's a Michael Jackson thing I haven't heard before. I was just excited to hear that and I'm like not even paying attention to him. Uh, But just like the idea that this sort of like uncanny resurrection narrative thing can just appear on your album out of nowhere and then disappear. And it's not going to like completely either break up the flow or introduce some like weird ass like um implications about your positioning in pop history or like your relationship to michael jackson and who he was and what he stood for well and like drake has is constantly trying to put himself in a lineage with other people um on 23 on the 2013 album i can't remember the name of it right now nothing was the same yeah he's got that song wu-tang forever on take care he's got a song called underground kings on views he has like he found an actual pimp c from underground kings um unused verse somewhere and um took it and put it on views and uh it's the best verse in the album oh it is because pimp c um is fucking incredible 
off in the edge of what Ken told me. Niggas like to play games cause they feel like they know feel like they know me. You don't know me, nigga, I done changed. So don't be trying to put no shit off in the game. This ain't no motherfucking nine and one. We out here rapping for money, you niggas rapping for fun. I don't fuck with nobody in this shit but one. Hey, at least it tracked numbers. At least it did numbers. Um, Drake is constantly trying to put himself in a lineage with these other artists. Um, he's constantly in a collaborating mode, and a um, on all his albums, he's like taking sounds from other places. Um, early on in his career, he was really known for like having a like Houston and Tennessee like flow over these R&B tracks and then he moved on to like I think he's appropriating Caribbean music a lot uh, some people on the internet will tell you that it's not because he's from Toronto which has a lot of um, Caribbean immigrants yeah if the, the line you're trotting out is my city has a lot of those people mm-hmm. then you're on very very shaky ground friend yeah and like I don't I never know what Drake is trying to accomplish other than doing numbers um on the on on this new record scorpion um he's taking some new orleans bounce which once again he has like a weird claim to because he knows little wayne or whatever i mean i think like the 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 bit that crystallizes for me is the first half of more life which has the gigs track no long talk where he does the most horrendous like I don't even know how to describe it. Pastiche is probably the best. Pastiche is very kind. <laughs> oh, fine. Um, uh, like clown impression. We don't need to hear about the next man. Dudes talk down and they get ran. Left them, get dipped from the whole ends. If killer call shots, no questions. G wait till I'm resting. But we still got love for the West End. If it's a chit chat thing, better talk nice. And an incredibly misguided and in some ways deeply offensive attempt at a London accent trying to do grime. And alongside Giggs, who is one of the sort of like long-standing mm-hmm. like pillars of like a very real underground-based, uh, like very reputable and like ever more powerful grime scene in London the idea of Drake being able to waltz on, both get gigs as a feature, and then get the buy-in of everyone around him, for him to just use the word like muns and get away with it, is fucking galling. Where's the, where is the Drake version of Man's Not Hot? I mean, I think we already have it, and I think it's the two gigs tracks on More Life, and I think that's, we just have to leave it there. There's like a YouTube video that goes around sometime of like, Drake, Drake like genuinely loves rap music, and there's like a YouTube video that goes around sometimes of like him just in the club rapping along to a Chief Keef verse that he just really likes, and it's just kind of like a cute thing of like oh he just really likes this Chief Keef verse, and I really want that with Man's Not Hot because it would just highlight. I mean, what we have already had is um Boy Better Know being the like big London label that a lot of the like superstars of grime have come out under. Um, Skepta included, if I remember correctly, um, they put on a party at which Drake just sort of, like, completely out of the blue dropped in on and, like, jumped around on the stage for a bit, um, sort of announced that they were all part of one big happy family and then waltzed off again. This was just after the Brit Awards. This is maybe two years after Kanye, like, collected Theophilius London and a load of London grime artists to do all all night on the um, Brit Awards stage. 
and it's sort of like was meant to be one of these signal posts that like our British rap music is like making an imprint on the states but more than anything it signaled how Drake as an interloper could just sort of waltz into a different scene celebrate his like ascent to the top of it and just waltz back out again that that moment has already happened. There are definitely YouTube clips. I very clearly remember mm-hmm. my like London Twitter friends like blowing the fuck up about it. So that like w- the the thing for me that's so galling is that like firstly there are two gigs features on that record. Um, there are no grime features whatsoever on this new record. No yeah. like grime sounds even. All the Caribbean sounds that he was using on Views and More Life are just gone now. Um. Uh, just, they've disappeared. And then the the sort of duo that are probably the most, I'm not going to say, I am going to say offensive. The two tracks that I find the most offensive on More Life are Get It Together and Madiba Rhythm. Madiba Rhythm is so bad. So Black Coffee is like a very reputable sort of deep house producer from South Africa. Um, like South Africa, like really clocked on that deep house sound. Um, I know from personal experience, um, I've spent more than enough time in that country to know how much it loves the sort of like confluence of Afrobeat and deep house. And like, that's a, that's a, that's a very distinct aesthetic that like has been developed in really interesting and novel ways. And Black Coffee is one of the people who has done that. Um, Drake hops on a Black Coffee produced track. Um, it's not offensive particularly, but what he does next is a track called Madiba Rhythm. Not Madiba Rhythm, um, Madiba, by the way. Madiba Rhythm is how it's yeah. spelled. So, so firstly, R-I-D-D-I-M is like a uh, general Caribbean loan word brought over to all sorts of British uh, dance and rap and like hip hop adjacent music for a beat it just means beat mm-hmm. um you see it sla- slashed all over like old jungle tracks you see it slashed all over um like instrumental flips of grime tracks or instrumental flips of garage tracks it's like this, what people use to describe that in a lot of cases this is not a like genre that i'm terribly familiar with and i've heard like or the word rhythm a lot you know like that's the kind of yeah. like, cultural power or like it's the, knownness i guess yeah it's well, yeah, no, it's, it's one of the, like, basic, basic level terms and signifiers for the genre. And that when I say genre, the whole, like, scene of interconnected genres from, like, British-based dance music that takes a lot from, like, Caribbean music, like, like in the way that dub lends straight into dubstep and drum and bass, and the same way that, like, um, MCing lends straight into, like, both Britain's tradition of hip-hop and grime and garage. Mm-hmm. Both of those scenes, like, will use that sort of word. The second word there is Madiba. Madiba, for anyone who doesn't know, is a nickname for Nelson Mandela. Um, Nelson Mandela being the sort of political, like, father of the South African nation, Mm. um, who recently died, uh, who was certainly had passed by 2000, like, late 2017 when more life dropped. When you talk about the cultural iconography that you're bringing together, not only is the, 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 like, just seeing those two words adjacent to each other on my Spotify is, like, stomach churning for me as, like, okay, a white person, but a South African white person and a South African white person who's, like, invested in, like, the, like, local and, like, 
historic nature of dance and hip-hop music particularly dance music but dance music is the one that like gets me like as a liberating force as like a a cultural iconography it's super important to me and like drum and bass and dub are like two of the aspects that are like crucial for forming that in london they're like the uk's first original dance music scene was drum and bass or jungle and like seeing these two words as a south african who cares about drum and bass like it's a niche demographic i know but i think anyone with any sort of like reasonable reading or context for what that track means will understand just how disconnected drake is for it just how disconnected it is from anything drake has ever done before or since again all the um like south african or afrobeat influenced stuff entirely disappears on scorpion Mm-hmm. and um kind of like demonstrates the degree to which he's willing to sort of not only genre hop but like he he wants to be a chameleon he wants to set trends he wants to ride them that only works if you actually feel like a meaningful component of the things you're either hopping onto or establishing at no point during that that whole stretch of like his flirtation with Afrobeat and grime, did he feel in any way authentically part of it? And I say authentic, and that's like got some quite strict connotations of like mm-hmm. where you need to be from or like the sorts of things you need to have happened in your life to be a part of a thing. But on the most basic level, he sounds wrong. He sounds out of his depth. He sounds unconvinced himself. He doesn't seem committed to it. And it comes across in the music, which is half-assed and, like, not only unremarkable, but, like, off in a really unsettling way. In a way that I find, like, deeply disconcerting and, like, deeply upsetting, given the way that, like, hey, there's been a tradition of British dance music and British hip-hop that has, like, been long and storied and really interesting. And I want to talk about it on this podcast. And hearing, like, Madiba Rhythm, it's, like, the, the my worst fears for the sort of, like, crass commercialization of that like cultural cachet um all come to fruition just on that one track mm-hmm. and it like uh, it gets under my skin in a way that very few other things have in recent history so i'm tempted to add something to that but i it's not like as important or as like powerful, but I think it's like an interesting thing to think about in this stuff, I guess. Go for it, go for it. Which is that like so Drake's biggest beats in his career have been Meek Mill and um Pusha T. But I think it's also too import the important to note here the like much smaller and more subtle beefs. There have never been like diss tracks here, there's never been like an event here, but um it's a pervasive thing throughout his career, which is that his, um, since 2011 or 2012, his beefs with, um, Weekend and Kendrick Lamar, both of whom are on Take Care, he's on both of their albums from that time period, and both of them, Weekend was supposed to sign with OVO Sound and chose not to because he knew that he was just going to get into a deal, um, where he would be ghostwriting for Drake, and Kendrick... It's unclear what the origins of the beef are, but it's easy to imagine. Um, Kendrick is on a very, like... Kendrick is doing much more political rap than Drake has ever done or will ever do. And 
Drake really resents both of those people for that and is like constantly digging at them. And the reason I bring it up here is just um, when we're thinking about how Drake is appropriating um, other cultures and other labor, um, we've seen what's happened when people stand up to that and Drake just silently seethes for six years, seven years, eight years. And it's such a weird... It's such a weird thing. Um, Can I just add here a Rolling Stone quote from an interview they published with Kendrick about what whack means? Please do. If you remember what the um, the line was in um, Element. Last OP I tried to lift a black goddess, but it's the difference between black goddess and whack goddess. The, the uh, interview says, um, Kendrick defines a whack artist as someone who uses other people's music for their approval. We're talking about someone that is scared to make their own voice, chases somebody else's success in their thing, but runs away from their own thing. That's what keeps the game watered down. Everyone's not going to be able to be a Kendrick Lamar. I'm not telling you to rap like me. Be you. Simple as that. Yeah. I cannot think of any rapper that defines being, well, genuinely being scared of their own voice more than Drake. Mm-hmm. And like, there's there's a real impression that like, the reason that Drake has always been very subtle about, like, his beef with Kendrick is that if it became anything bigger, like, Kendrick owns his voice, Kendrick knows who he is as an artist, and, like, it would go very poorly for Drake. And Kendrick is on the level of fame in a way that Meek and Pusha T are not, where that could, like, affect his sales. I mean, Drake got bodied by Pusha T who is a very, very good lyricist and someone with a very strong profile. Mm-hmm. But Kendrick is on a whole nother level on both those counts. Yeah. And, hey, if you want to talk about proximity to the streets, like, oh, yeah. hey, like, picking up on um, Top Dog is the, is the way no. to go about it. If you're at all anxious or uncertain about your own credibility as someone who has experiences in the world Mm -hmm. or indeed who has a lack of confidence about their own voice and chases other people's success. Yeah. Like, you know, like J rock schoolboy, schoolboy Kendrick himself, not even talking about their connection to the streets. Um, Isaiah Rashad, like all those top dog artists are so much more self-confident than Drake has ever been. Um, just as artists. Yeah. 100%. Um, but yeah, I think I think we should wrap. I feel like we should wrap. I feel like I have excised my demons of like resentment about Drake's misogyny and success. Um, yeah. So what are our conclusions? Drake might appear to issue um, like the most toxic forms of masculinity, but is still grossly misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Drake feels deeply inauthentic because he is borrowing from other people liberally, never defining his own voice continually changing and being bodied on his own tracks by other people who can inhabit his emotional space way better than he can. And there are people who have set out a blueprint for him. There's the Dr. Dre's and the Kanye West's of the world who have always had ghostwriters who have always been collaborating. But um, Drake, like Kanye will use other other artists almost as an instrument. 100%. Um, and Drake can never get into that mode because he still wants the limelight but is not performing on the level of a Rihanna or a or even a Rick Ross and I'm not even a big Rick Ross fan. I totally agreed. Um we also like 
agree that his performance is just so substandard that like it just can't communicate the things he's attempting to to, to say mm-hmm. and that ultimately when you like actually like try and try your very very best to believe what drake is saying he is such a man child that he like blows it even when there's the opportunity to be sincere mm-hmm. so yeah we don't like drake that much and like I guess the only the last thing I want to say is that like I came into 2018 rooting for Drake. Um, he put out "Nice for What," which is him appropriating a New Orleans sound, but it's a really good song. You know, I was like, okay, at least if he's going to be appropriative, he's going to do it well. And um, you know, Big Freedia is credited on that track, and. He comes out with God's Plan, which is more of a typical Drake song, but it's just a good one of those, I feel like. Yeah, um, I mean, it feels like a sub-Kanye track. A lot a lot of the, the best moments on Scorpion are when he's like, almost, I'm gonna do uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, but down about nine notches. And that, like, I, I think if we are just gonna quickly dive into, like, what do we think of the best moments of Drake? Elevate and emotionless is a is a two stop at the first half of the the, the first side of Scorpion. Is it, it like really encapsulates the the emotional tenor of the album? Elevate is sort of like it's a track with generic enough a title to be like hiding in the back of a Nike store and like nominally be the the hype music for you to buy shoes to. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's like deeply drab and like dark as all hell. And then emotionless comes along, which is like it's just before God's plan. It leads into it very well. It's got that sort of sub Kanye like soul-ish instrumental beat, um, mm-hmm. somewhat acoustic. It just like never gets any energy to it. It's it's like dead. It's it's got all the trappings of that of that like soul and heart that went into anything from my beautiful dark twisted fantasy to like go through the litany of um sample like sample based like particularly um east coast like that sort of very boom bap traditional style Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you can just hear the energy completely sapped out of this and like yep hey it's a track called emotionless but like you're certainly not trying to be that way you're trying to like communicate how you're like better than this emotionlessness you're you're like you're you're like able to deal with it and you're better off for it i like sandra's rose but um that song is uh, just a worse version of You and the Six. Uh, yeah, I like Summer Games, but because it's for the first time he feels anything, and it's also a Lord track, basically, that isn't written by Lord. I like that that's how you feel, just because it's one of the few beats that's really strong and that forces Drake to actually write. And like, hey, Drake's not the most incredible of songwriters, but hey, if you force him to like actually put a melody together, he sounds better than when he's incredibly one note is that another one where he's um taking that new orleans bounce sound no that's in my feelings yeah that's in my feelings just as a side note um which is lesser than nice for what yeah just as a side note calling a track in my feelings when duffy freestyle had the line at pusher get out your feelings it's just like a quite wonderful bit of irony that like i'm not sure if he just didn't catch or maybe he did and he think it's still appropriate or he did and he thinks he can have it both ways because he's Drake and he's the emotional rapper and he's the one who can like tell other people to man up, but then like talk sincerely about his emotional state. 
It feels like every Drake song since 2008 could be titled, in my feelings. Pretty much. Pretty much. So, hey, um, this has been yeah. several minutes of us not liking Drake together. Yeah. Hey, if you like that, you can probably find us places on the internet. This is a podcast called Hot Singles, and we haven't sorted out social media bullshit because who's got time for that? We're basically going to try and talk a lot about music we actually like in the future. Yeah, we were supposed to do Odd Future. It's just that I needed to get Drake out of my system. That Ali doesn't um. like herself. <laughs> um, so yeah, hopefully over time we'll sort of like figure out what we want to talk about. We'll hear from you, what you're finding interesting about what we talk about. But yeah, no, hopefully there'll be a lot of us just like pouring our like collected, I'd say expertise, like our collected knowledge and know-how and like genuine love for a lot of the music we listen to. And try and explain it to other people, because that's fun. Yeah. Some of the stuff I'm most excited about that we've talked about doing is, like, I have, like, a very surface-level knowledge of various genres, like jazz and um, a lot of disco and funk. And uh, we're going to try and, like, dive deep into stuff like that. So I'm going to hopefully be learning alongside the listeners. Um Talking about me explaining 90s rap to my good friend Regression over here. Yeah, um, because which not be... only, like, I, I don't know if it's just me being utterly po-faced, but I will still continuously stand for, like, indie rock with guitars. And I will still be <laughs> endlessly confused by rap music released before about 2009. So... We're gonna work on you. I'm gonna teach you all about Chameleon Air and Paul Wall and the perfect album they released in like 2004. Wait, hang on, was it Chameleon Air or Chameleon Air? I'm really not sure off the top of my head. This is where we're putting the fade out, right? <laughs>